Good morning, listeners, and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. I'm not sure how often I say this on the podcast, but I say it plenty of times in normal life, that every time I get a new bit of technology that allows me to do things more easily, like my Bose sunglasses with the speakers just in front of my ears, or when I was wearing the little sonar device on my throat that allowed me to find obstacles you know, directly in front of my face, I go, oh, can't I just onboard this and become a cyborg? And, you know, people laugh, but I'm deadly serious. I want to be a cyborg as soon as possible because it means I'll have to carry less technology around with me. Today, we're going to talk to two of the smartest and kindest people I've ever met, Dr. Arthur Saniotis and Dr. Marchie Hennenberg, where I used to have fun of sitting in Marchie's office with them, writing interesting papers and playing with stone tools and feeling skulls. And they're now starting to work on machine human interfaces and trying to push the development of this in a new direction. Something I don't understand other than I'm going to keep contextualizing it in terms of how do I become the ultimate cyborg. So listeners, welcome to the episode on how we turn David into a transhuman. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Olney. Thank you very much for joining us, David. Thank you for being the orderly person who makes Zoom meetings work, Tim. <laughs> of course, yes. Speaking of which, we have uh, esteemed guests, uh, some of David's oldest friends to ever appear on the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us, Marchi Henneberg. Thank you. Pleased and, to be here. And thank you very much as well for joining us from the other side of the world, Arthur Saniotis. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. We may now have proof that Arthur actually is a vampire because he sounds as perky at midnight in Poland as he used to sound here at 10 o'clock in the morning. Indeed. Indeed. This part of the world has many myths and legends of our vampiric cousins. <laughs> and, and he is quite possibly becoming one of those cousins. It's all okay. <laughs> and and to, to add to this, I'm born in Poland and I'm talking to you from Adelaide and Arthur is born in Australia and he's talking to you from Poland. We knew the world was going to be topsy-turvy when we tried to turn David into a cyborg. <laughs> okay, gentlemen, you are the experts. You have worked okay. on a thing called Eli. I don't know how to introduce it because I don't want to miss important bits. So you guys start riffing on the awesome stuff you do. Okay, and it's um, Ellie. All right, we're doing it with proper pronunciation. I will apologise. Well, Ellie. I call her Ellie because I, I, I think of her as a, a, girl. a kind of female I do, right. Ellie, rather than Eli, but uh, it, whatever. Marchi? Right, I'll, I'll do a little bit of evolutionary introduction with stone tools. Yeah. If Excellent. Possible. I studied human brain evolution for about 40 years. And from my work, it resulted that we humans use our whole brain to do practically anything. So we have dispersed neural networks working in our brain and both hemispheres 
even for simple activities. Therefore, it is not right to say that human brain is like a series of chips that each does something else. So it's a, it's a general working set of intersecting networks. And from this, we then discussing things with Arthur came up with an idea of how we can enhance human brain by not adding another chip or putting another electrode into some particular place, but rather adding miniature devices to the entire network. Arthur. Yeah, thank you, Marci. That's a, that's a good introduction. Um, and uh, as we were developing this idea, David, you know, I, you know, Marci and I spend a lot of time in nature and we both love nature very much because nature uh, sort of inspires us. And uh, I thought of the idea of um, fungus plant root symbiosis uh, called endomycorrhiza, which is the oldest type of symbiosis in the world. It's over 400 million years old. And basically, it, uh, 80 to 90% of plants engage in this kind of symbiosis. It, it provides life to the planet, basically, the symbiosis. So I, I brought this idea forward to Marchi and we developed it. So uh, Ellie basically is an inspiration from endomycorrhiza, basically, how endomycorrhiza works. So basically fungus, they send forth uh, arms, little arms called uh, mycelium, which penetrate the plant roots. Uh, they provide protection to the plants against pathogens, while at the same time, the plant provides the fungus uh, all kinds of nutrients and sugar in order that it survives. So it's a very, very nice symbiotic relationship. And uh, we developed Ellie, and the, uh, Ellie's full name is um, endomycorrhiza ligand interface. So uh, this idea, based on nature's design principles, is fundamental to Ellie's design. The design is based on the concept of nanobots, as you know, for the last 30 years or so, and certainly during the 21st century, it is possible to build from molecules, tiny little machines that can enter not only human bodies, but even they can go into the cells in the body. And uh, the challenge for and the mycorrhiza was that it has to connect different neurons in the brain. And therefore, once it gets into the brain tissue, it will have to spread its tentacles to touch different cells. But this is doable with modern nanotechnology. The other problem is that brain is very well protected against entry of any substances. It's called the brain-blood barrier. So practically nothing from the blood except oxygen and nutrients gets into the brain tissue. 
And therefore, we had to invent another way of putting those nanorobots, nanobots, into the brain. And this is possible because we can introduce them directly into the cerebrospinal fluid in the brain. And once there, those nanobots, which are uh, running on electric energy, uh, can find neurons, nerve cells, to which they can attach, and then they spread their tentacles and connect various neurons. Uh, the energy that they get is actually from <coughs> electrochemical reactions inside the brain tissue, so they can work without having batteries inserted. Arthur. Yeah, we have to also mention, uh, David, uh, uh, one of our young colleagues who also helped us develop this was Abdul Rahman Sawalma, who's of Palestinian descent, whom I met at Jerusalem when I was living in Jerusalem just a couple of years ago, as you know. And uh, Abdul Rahman uh, is a very fine young physician and is also a neuroscientist. So uh, he also had a major input in the development of Eli, which is so we acknowledge also um, Abdul Rahman, who's presently in Germany undertaking a PhD. So, which is great. You and he can hang out occasionally. Well, yeah, we, we haven't, apart from this, we haven't done anything with uh, okay. Abdul Rahman uh, because he's been busy with his doctorate yeah. at the present time. But uh, as Marchi said, the, you know, Ellie's a nanobot. And what is fundamentally different about our neuroprosthetic design is it's not digital. You know, it's not to do with electrodes yeah. or placing electrodes or some kind of chip. You know, it's not digital based. It's, it's, it's going to a very, very novel step. So um, how do you so imagine the self-organization of it? So you know, the whole pile of the nanobots go into the spinal fluid. Do they have some basic instructions to find a first neuron and connect and then yeah, they, randomly connect to us? So is it, are they going to work randomly or do they have some idea of what they need to do? Is this letting well, nature do its own thing or? Well, in nanotechnology, which is still in a kind of nascent stage, mm. David, we, we have to instruct these nanobots because if we don't instruct them, they'll go haywire. Mm. So instructing Ellie would be, uh, Ellie would be attracted to the electrochemicals of the electrochemical output or, uh, or transmissions of neurons, action potentials. These action potentials act as a kind of electronic signatures where, where Ellie would be attracted towards. And basically, Ellie would attach, it would send filaments to, um, to dying neurons or neurons which need help because Ellie is going to be a therapeutic device for people, or that's what intention is for people suffering from neurodegenerative diseases, which are increasing markedly now as we're aging. Uh, diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease, people who have strokes or trauma where 
parts of their brain have been damaged. So what Ellie does is Ellie would be connecting, sending forth its arms. So Ellie's the construction of Ellie it would have a, a central cation. And from the cation would be extended arms. These arms would attach themselves to the dendrites or cell bodies or axons, exons of neurons. And it would be able to monitor the transmissions of neurons which need support. And by doing so, it would open up the cation and send positive ions to those um, neurons which need support. It could also improve the speed of transmissions of neurons. So it's got a twofold effect. It would monitor and send action potentials to neurons which are in need, as well as improving the speed of transmissions, which in neuroscience are called action potentials. An action potential basically is a transmission. Okay, just a fancy word. Mm. So this is basically how Ellie would work. So it's essentially looking for weak transmission and then amplifying it to make sure that signals get back to the kind of level they should have been and get back to the speed they should have been. So since you're trying to overlay the brain with something that can get it back to having that efficient transmission. Correct. And the word which you used amplifying is exactly the word. Ellie's going to be basically amplifying. So in a sense, this would be the first meaningful step towards real intelligence augmentation, wouldn't it? Because you're not telling the brain to be any different. You're overlaying or interlaying the brain with a toolkit that can just help it do what it already wants to do more effectively and more quickly. Marci? Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, our I initial... love talking to you too. You two explain things that well, I know what's going on. <laughs> well, you explain them well too. Uh, but our initial interest was in dementia, in repairing mm. brain that had uh, some problems, dementia or, or stroke. But you found out immediately that the other use of Ellie is to improve the general workings of the brain and to improve them in a natural way. I'm going back to what I said at the beginning to this set of intersecting widely dispersed neuronal networks that make our brain work so well and on so many different levels. And the, there is obviously, as with any enhancement, a little danger because we may enhance the brain too much. And that's something that we would need to still work on to allow the human intelligence to be amplified, but not to be distorted. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's the challenge in programming uh, those elite nanobots to work for us rather than against us. So really, again, a good way to, I think, make this you know, clear and comprehensible is like with amplification. At a certain point with amplification as a guitarist, like Tim and I are, you get feedback because you're facing the ample, you've got too much volume and you distort and destroy your signal. And it can be entertaining, but it's normally not good. So again, the trick here is to work with the system, not to overwhelm the system. Correct, I, correct, correct. And, and uh, 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 Marchi, 
over the years has taught me about the importance of feedback yeah. or you know self-catalytic self-catalytic processes amplification which really is fundamental to human evolution as as we've written on it in our in a recent paper and Marchi explained it to me many years ago the importance of of amplification yeah. both in ecological systems and as well as cultural systems and that's how we got over the green line basically yeah yep. wow what a fascinating so again a bit out of left field but it was a thing bubbling through my head as you were both talking okay we have the wonderful example of 400 million years of fungus and plants coming together and interfacing in this way but it seems within humans too we have the interface between microflora you know, our microbium and our nervous system so in a sense we're a walking version you know not the same but we've got that level of interface between bacteria doing what they can do and us being positively affected by it so we've sort of already we've done our own version already in a way haven't we yes we have and laws of nature are the same for everything so okay. obviously yeah. they apply to the planet or to the ecosystem and they apply to our body and there is a link between our gut microflora for example and our brain mm. actually what microflora does in our gut is sent through autonomic nervous system to the brainstem and the brainstem then processes this information sends it to the hypothalamus and so on. So there is a mm. connection between how microflora behaves and how our brain reacts. Because besides what we said already about neuronal connections being electrical connections, we must remember that our brain is inside the human body. And therefore, it is also run by neurohormonal regulation, by chemical processes that occur in our body. And, and they affect the brain. So brain is not just a set of neuronal circuits. It's also a physiological organ that reacts to various chemicals that enter it. And this is going to be one of the significant things about you guys seeing this as an organic process is until now, like, again, I pay attention to the research to try and give people eyesight back. And it's always like, where are we going to stick the electrode array? And they're trying to very deliberately just put electrical information in one part of the brain. And part of the reason it doesn't work well is the brain goes, what is this crude, weird thing you're trying to do to me? But part of what I can see is the more advanced interface technology gets. It's exactly what Marchi just said. You know, we could accidentally trigger hormonal activity in the body because we're affecting the brain. And the, the sort of amplified side effects of affecting hormonal activity incorrectly or too extremely could be catastrophic. Correct. That's why that's why the development or the engineering of a device like Ellie will take years because these are really this is a, a new type of science, a new type of device. And uh, one reason why we created it is because present-day neuroprosthetics have got problems. Yeah. For example, they can degrade. Secondly is you've got to open up the, the skull to put these little devices in, which means that um, the, there could be abrasion to nearby neurons. 
there is post-operative infection. Uh, these devices degrade and erode. They don't last forever. So you have to reopen the skull again and put a, a new device. Also, there can be glial inflammation and scarring, which is not good. So a, a device like Ellie would theoretically bypass all of these uh, problems. So that was something we took into consideration when we developed Ellie, that uh, it, she would bypass these present medical problems. So essentially, you know, the way in could be uh, a needle into the spinal, you know, into the spine, getting into the spinal fluid. So you don't have to go anywhere near the brain and just let them travel up through the spinal fluid, which again circulates no, during the day or, or straight into the skull. We would, we would, we chose to go through the nasal passage through the ethmoidal bulla okay. uh, and into the inferior part of the brain yeah. uh, where there is uh, um, the folds of dura mater and uh, from there Ellie could be injected uh, into the uh, C system of CSF and there nano these nanobots Ellie would propel herself I always call her she would prepare herself uh, like maybe using a little propeller, little yeah. propeller device towards uh, and be attracted towards the signatures of nearby neurons. And of course, being a nanobot, uh, it could pass through the blood brain barrier because yeah. it's so incredibly tiny. Yeah. And this is also why Ellie would need to be engineered very carefully so she goes to the places where she's ordered to we'll see that the this automatically time, opens up the other idea then that for people with spinal cord injuries do you conceive of ellie also being the way to be able to bridge potentially you know gaps where the spinal cord's been severed Archie, what do you think yeah, that's an uh, interesting question uh, oh yes yes david i completely agree with you we tried to with uh, one of our phd students Malcolm Brin to grow neurons in the spinal cord so that they can reconnect and we, we build a device and so on but it takes a long time for mm. for neurons in the spinal cord to reconnect whereas Ellie can do this yeah. and so that's that's a very very good additional idea of how to use Ellie and then we obviously do lumbar puncture and yeah. put put them into the uh, cerebrospinal fluid surrounding spinal cord. But while you were talking about how people try to improve sight of people who lost sight, mm -hmm. it just occurred to me that uh, uh, maybe I, I should go backtrack because Arthur, it, it, I'm connecting a few things we said. Arthur was talking about operations. Two years ago, I had an operation on my retina and took six cuts to the eyeball and so on. Mm -hmm. it, it worked, but it was dangerous. Mm -hmm. Whereas retina and eye is part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we can think about Ellie that may enhance the workings of the retina. Yeah. 
uh, that that would be a natural enhancement of the visual system in the brain. Because it could just move along the optic nerve and colonize and help. Yes. So really, again, this is the wonderful thing here. Getting the network connected to the brain as a whole, that's the monumental end task. But being able to do something to help, you know, with a spinal cord injury or to up the signal traffic in the retina might be smaller, you know, earlier tasks to prove the concept. Yes. Indeed. Can, can I ask, we were talking about sort of the amplification of neurons earlier and, and the best way that I can understand that and perhaps I'm crossing different concepts here is like the idea of um, myelin sheathing, right? Um, oh, you're remembering me teaching you about myelin and complex yes. problem solving. That yes. again, you build a stronger circuit by wrapping more myelin around it so you get a faster, more electrically powerful signal. Is that, are we sort of, is, is that a, a, a useful way to think about it? Some kind of artificial myelin or not, not really? No, I, I, not really, but it's interesting you're talking about myelin. Uh, a couple of years ago, Tim, I was in Marty's office with uh, one of our younger colleagues and um, we did a test. Remember the test, Marty, which we did on speed? And Marty was telling me back then that uh, a person who's a little bit more corpulent, actually their, their speed time is faster because they've got my, more myelin. Uh, remember, Marty, when you said that? Yes, yes, Arthur, I remember. Tegan, Tegan was there. Yeah. Yep. And remember the speed. Now, I'm pretty fast, guys, because I've been a martial artist all my life. But as you can see, I'm quite lean. Uh, and she was faster than me. Her, her, yeah. her actual, we, we did a little anthropometric test, and uh, this test showed that she was actually faster than me. And I was just to totally taken by surprise. And I said, how can this be? You know, I'm, yeah. I, I train every day. Every day, every, yeah. Every yeah. friggin' day I train in karate ever since, you know, yeah. <laughs> when I you, was a kid. You were a very small Tegan vampire. Tegan was faster than me. Faster, Tegan was faster than me. And I said to Machi, and what was the answer, Machi? When you provided me myelin, myelin, yeah. myelin is a fat, and fat covers nerves and uh, allows them to uh, transmit signals faster. Yep. Uh, sorry to talk about my own experiences. No, again, do it. It's a great way to explain things. Well, two, two things. I I measured reaction times of children in Africa. Four thousand children, about two thousand very poor rural children, about another 2,000 children in better urban conditions. And there was a big difference in the reaction time, the, the speed of reaction. And uh, we did with James Granham, uh, then medical student, now a young doctor practicing at Royal Adelaide Hospital, as we speak, we did a study correlating the reaction time, so the yeah, reaction time, speed of reaction of children with the amount of fat in their bodies. And there was a clear correlation. But what I wanted to talk about, about myelin, is what I experienced last year, uh, and I'm still suffering from it. Last year, my autoimmune system was uh, somehow making an error and stripping myelin from my peripheral nerves. It is oh, known that's as- bad. It, Yes, it is bad. It is known as 
Guillain-Barre syndrome, and uh, there is no cure. The only thing we can do is to use um, to use uh, uh, immunoglobulins to stop the stop this action of autoimmune system. Uh, well, which happened when I got delivered to emergency at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, and I was paralyzed. And uh, I spent seven weeks in hospitals recovering, and then a long time and still going on doing physiotherapy and hydrotherapy to recover. I still have sensory deficits in my fingers and my lower legs and so on, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. And while, while I was in the hospital, <laughs> physiotherapist working with me said, you're a professor at a medical school, why don't you invent something to help patients with yeah. syndrome that you have as well? And using Ali would be one of the possibilities. It would be possibility of using Ali in a different system in the peripheral nerves, yeah. but it is still doable. I'm just going to jump in here and go back to Tim's point because everyone who studied with Tim is going to remember me telling the class about myelin and the importance to building skills. So Tim, Arthur and Marchi can correct me if I'm wrong, but if you think of myelin, myelin is the insulator around a nerve that already exists. Yeah. What we're talking about yeah. with Ellie here is literally rolling out an alternate cable. Uh, not well, remember, remember, each neuron in our brain has got many other cells mm. called glial cells which support mm. the neuron. So we've got a lot more glial cells than, than actual nerve cells in, our, in yeah. our brain. So myelin is made by supportive cells in the brain called glial cells. And there's different types of glial cells, astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, uh, monophages, etc. The oligodendrocytes make the myelin sheet that's their job so uh, ellie doesn't necessarily do that job no Ellie's but it, ellie provides a different yeah. way of linking between two points instead of it being the body doing it yeah correct i mean yeah. unless ellie could be instructed in, in in some future to to discuss or to talk mm. together or to communicate with the oligodendrocyte but the, this, our, our present design mm. uh, is not for myelin formation. No. But there are opportunities or possibilities, absolutely. Mm. So, Tim, uh, for, to jump back to Tim's point. So, Tim, you know, you're right that myelin's critical for the natural system. What we're talking about is an overlay system here. So, imagine we're in the studio and we're having a problem with the cables on the desk. And in frustration, you stop fighting with the ones you've got and you lay out a new network. Mm. That's really what we're talking yes. about instead. I feel like we're going from copper to fiber optic though. That's the Yeah, but that's that's okay. <laughs> let's let's use that as a way that yeah, anyone like you with that tech background immediately makes sense. <laughs> We've got a copper system, we're looking at it and going to try and fix that is gonna be a nightmare. Well, the point with Ellie is Ellie isn't going to have to be told big things about the system. Ellie's just going to have to be told, look for places where you can get power to run. Mm. Look for weak signals that need help and lay in your fiber optics to replace the copper. It, again, Marchi, Arthur, that I know it's a reductionist thing, yeah, but is sorry. that close <laughs> enough to get people to, to get the main idea? Yes. Yes. Good. Indeed. Yes. 
Yes, it is. Remember, remember uh, uh, the novelty of Ellie, again, if we're talking in artificial intelligence terms, there are two thinkers called Duffy and Dewey. They wrote uh, an idea or two ideas, the in-world approach and the on-world approach of artificial intelligence. The present neuroprosthetics, which we have, are uh, an on-world approach. Yeah. How you've got, uh, you've got a little device which is connected to a wire and it can be controlled by a person, okay? That's, so the neuroprosthetic has got an effect on the environment. This is what's called an on-world approach. Now, Ellie would be following an in-world approach. An in-world approach is that a, an artificial intelligence device is having effect not only on the environment, but in the environment. Mm. Now, that's qualitative, very different. Yeah. Uh, and that's and to what, me, it's very much this is intelligence augmentation, not artificial intelligence, because of that difference. Like on world is us trying to put a monkey wrench on and twist something. In world is acknowledging the system itself knows more about itself than we can. And how do you work with it rather than impose on it? Well, David, it's, it's like you were co-creator of this. I, I love how you're, you've picked up the idea immediately and, and you're elaborating it in a real beautiful manner, it, precisely. If you guys got to remember, I'm doing a master's in strategic communication at the moment because I'm tired of good ideas dying because people don't know how to communicate them to people with power. So my big game at the moment is to go, okay, take the brilliant idea. Now, how do we make it comprehensible and make sure that people care? So I've sort of taken my natural disposition to a whole new level of, all right, how am I going to sell this to the power broker? How am I going to get in a language they understand? And if we talk to a power broker about intelligence augmentation and that they won't go into cognitive decline and that we can do something about a friend's spinal cord injury and we can do something about retinal decline, we can do something about, you know, things affecting peripheral nerves. So when Marchie was talking about his experiences last year, I was thinking about Jacqueline Dupre when, you know, her hands started to stop working and she couldn't play the cello anymore. Imagine yeah. what you could do yeah. with Ellie for someone like Jacqueline Dupre, who's put her whole young life into playing cello and it starts to stop working. Well, that's, that's why we created Ellie because, yeah. you know, we're an aging world. Yeah. And, uh, and, and because we're living for so much longer now, many human beings, particularly in Western countries, that, you know, many of us are falling victim to... Yeah. Uh, neurodegenerative diseases, yeah. uh, which are going to be increasing a lot in the next 20 to 30 years. I mean, quite exponentially yeah. by, for example, Alzheimer's is going to be increasing by over 200%. Yeah, you know, what terrifying. are we going to do? Yeah. Uh, we don't have proper therapies at this present time to deal with these uh, very, very serious illnesses. Uh, they're expensive to treat. They are. Uh, the prognosis is not very good with many of these neurodegenerative diseases. And we're including here things like Huntington's, yeah. which get uh, younger people. Uh, and so, you know, we've got to go back and, and think what kind of therapies can we do? We've got to think laterally. And that's why uh, working with Marchi is so good, because Marchi is a lateral thinker like you yeah. are. 
David, yeah. both so, of you. So have, what kind of response have you got so far? Like, have people got this idea quickly or are you having to explain it to them five times? You know, what's the take up been intellectually? Are people running with it already? No. <laughs> That's no. disappointing, right. <laughs> no, and uh, I've asked Marchi on several occasions uh, what's going on. Maybe Marchi can fill you in. Uh, he's got several reasons why it hasn't taken on, and it's not the design. Marchi? No, well, I'm just trying to think hard why it is not, but I, I think but one, one of the reasons is that in the popular knowledge or general knowledge, brain is still considered a computer. So it's like a set of uh, electronic bits connected together. So seeing the spreading of the networks and uh, then also the same application to the peripheral nerves as to the central nervous system is not getting through easily because concepts are different. Yeah. So that's that's one thing, people who get excited about nanotechnology are getting uh, more interest, or we are getting more interest, but uh, yet again, nanotechnology is basically reducing size of the robots based on the concept of extraneous or external application. They're still thinking on so, world, so, they can't move yes. from on world because they like cool robots, yeah. Yes. So the the concepts of the world as a set of feedbacks and the concept of dispersed networks and the concept of nature working together and the physiology influencing the brain besides just electrical connections and so all those concepts are difficult to build into the current uh, general knowledge. Yeah, my first idea that pops into my head with that is 2004 Iraq, Stan McChrystal takes over in Baghdad, Joint Special Operations yeah. Control, they're losing. And he basically says, we're fighting a network. If we don't become a network, we're going to lose. And essentially, it's the yeah. same thing here. The brain is a network. We are struggling to help it. We're losing. And we're losing because we're using a hierarchical model to try and work with a network. It, you know, that's the closest world analogy I can think of that more people would be aware of now. You got to go. Well, it's a, yeah, the, the brain is not simply a network, but it's, it's an ecological system among yeah. many ecological systems in the body. I mean, yeah. you and I, you know, what are we? We're basically an amalgamation of, um, of lots of ecological systems yeah. of which the brain is is a part now another thing which I, if i if i can continue with marchi mm. is that investment people have invested in the idea of the brain as being as a computer mm. so they're taking on this on world approach because yeah. you know they've made this huge inv ideological investment plus it's an investment which uh, is difficult to change, especially where you've got big corporate dollars now. You know, still we don't understand the body very well and, and the, yeah. the brain, we don't understand the brain very well. You know, we don't understand about ecological systems. We don't teach the body as uh, an integral system. Yeah. 
for example, cancer. For, you know, we've been spending 40, 50 years on cancer. And in some diagnostics, we've been improving, particularly in uh, diagnosing breast cancer, which has saved many, many women's lives. However, many, many people die of cancer every year, everywhere in the world. Now, it's only in the last 10 to 15 years that we've changed our understanding of cancer. And, and how did we change it? We got people, ecologists, going into forests and understanding how fauna and flora work together hmm. as integral systems. So we, we, we started to understand cancer as an ecological system from going to nature and looking how nature works. Hmm. And, and as you know, David and Marchi, you know, the, the tumor cells are working together with cells which haven't been affected by the tumor. They're being able to muster all kinds of resources from different types of the bodies. These tumor cells are, 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 are trick other cells to make roadways for them, mm. you know, called angiogenesis. I mean, they're very, very clever. But this kind of process operating within a tumor and around a tumor, it finds great similarity in how ecosystems work. So what I'm saying here is that it took us years to understand cancer because our understandings were linear and very primitive. Mm -hmm. And the same with our neuroprosthetics. So if we can go back to the drawing board and understanding the brain, and particularly Ellie, in terms of ecological systems, mm -hmm. because Ellie's coming from an ecological system based on the principle of endomycorrhiza, which mm -hmm. is basically symbiosis. Mm -hmm. So we've got to start thinking the body and the brain in terms of ecological systems. Mm. Is there an be... interesting history, though, of computers being developed in with inspiration of uh, endomycriosa? Like, is there this sort of gap? I, I'm, I'm just post, uh, postulating that, like, perhaps the invention of things like networks in the computer world were also inspired by natural causes. And it's been so long since that was sort of that that revelation was had that we've just sort of come full circle and now decided that <laughs> natural systems resemble computers well, well it, that's a good question marcia and i have talked about this uh for example the the ancient greeks and civilizations predating the greeks had a kind of uh integral understanding of nature and the universe uh, particularly the greeks the greeks had created what's called the antikythera device mm. which is the, the most ancient type of computer which we've unearthed. So they, they had knowledge about these kinds of what cybernetic systems. And Marchi knows a lot more about this than I do. Marchi? Well, thank you. Well, two, two items I would like to, to add to. And so, but the first is what Tim said. It's not only networking in the computing world, but also parallel processing. Instead of linear logical gates, one, two, one, two, one, two, or zero, one, zero, one processing, it's now parallel processing. And it, it works better. And it takes me back to 1978 when I was at the University of Texas in Austin <coughs> and talking as a biologist, talking to a professor of uh, then computing. And he was telling me about development of networks and so on. So 
it has been some time in human evolutions, nearly 50 years now. But I also wanted to go back to, to cancer for a moment, because Arthur is absolutely right about a different approach to cancer uh, treatment. Traditionally, we had linear cancer treatments, either surgery or chemotherapy. So take a knife and remove cancer or take chemical molecules and hit the cancer. Now, for the last, yet again, about 20 years, immunotherapies developed. And this is how body-own immune system interacts with cancer. And immunotherapies are becoming effective. They're, they're now fairly effective in treatment of melanoma. So it is the change of the general concepts. And we hope that if there is more of those changes of the general concept of networking and of using ecological examples in general, it will help to cure many diseases, not just our attempt at helping with uh, dementia or similar things in the brain. Yeah, it's such a fascinating point in history because you know, people are realizing the answers are out there in the world. Systems that have developed over so long, that have worked for so long, give us a clue of where to start because it's where the world got you know, in 400 million years. It's a good place to start. Our own evolution of being so many integrated systems is a good example. So it's kind of interesting that the on-world people, the crude model, has so much power. I guess it's easier for people to get their head around. It's easier to have a single-minded focus on an on-world crude solution than it is to admit that you have to be humble and look at a big integrated system and go, I'm not sure where to start. Yes, well, the, the, linear, the linear approach of science is much, and I have written, is based on you know a biological reductionism. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's an approach which has worked to some extent, but it's not optimal. Mm. Um, we've written on this. It's not an optimal approach. You're, you're taking a bit of the system and extrapolating that, you know, the whole system works according mm. to that small bit. And, of course, you and I know that that's ludicrous and it's nonsense. But it is the model which most science is working at the present time. Mm. And the model which the three of us extol is a, a model based on you know systems theorists or mm. general systems theory, uh, an integral approach that still is in a minority, mm. David. Uh, because you know there's not investment. You know corporates aren't investing in these kinds of ideas of you know the in integral models. You know the big mm. investment is still you know in in things like genetics and mm. genetics is to some extent working with this you know reductionist kind of model in science. Um, I mean, it does the job, but it's not optimal. Yeah, you, you can know, tell example, that we're very early in our scientific development that we are still so happy to get stuck in the fallacy of composition, pretending that each yeah. tiny thing we study represents the whole thing. Yeah. David, you started from reminding people about stone tools mm. <laughs> that we humans used. And my studies of human brain evolution indicate that this on-world approach had to evolve early on. Our brain started evolving about, give or take, five million mm. years ago. And we were evolving in the natural environment in which 
we had to get enough nutrition and we had to protect ourselves against dangers, especially predators. And therefore, our brain developed this ability to categorize things very quickly. When there is a bit of a movement behind the bush or I hear a strange sound, I must decide, is it a danger or is it an opportunity to eat something? And in science, although we say it's a big science and so in science, we still think this way, black, white, mm -hmm. good, bad. Genetics is a very good example of this because it's the, the, there is either a gene for something or there is no gene mm -hmm. for something in somebody's genome. So it's, it's a basic, very old, evolved human way to understand things, but obviously it does not work well when we realize that we live in a complex system, that the world is a complex system, not just a daily escape from dangers or <laughs> daily search for food. Yeah, it's an amazing paradox in us that we have such a high level of consciousness. But as you're saying, Marchi, at a given second, you need to decide run or attack. You need, you know, so we have all this ability to sit and ponder later, but we don't ponder in the moment because in the moment we could die. So we've always got the paradox of do we engage the ability to sit and reflect or do we react instantly and miss an opportunity? We do both. Yeah, David, and that's why it's a that's why it's a paradox because you can get it right, you can get it wrong, and the, the consequences can be loss of life now or loss of a massive opportunity, but you'll never know which. You just do the best you can at the time. Yeah, you were talking early on at the beginning, David. You were talking. You came up with the word transhumanism, mm. and and uh, you know the three of us uh, would have discussions on, on this idea. Uh, and it's something which uh, Marchi and I have written on for over a decade now mm. on, you know, on these transhumanist ideas. And let's see how far they can develop. Some, some of them are very, very out of this world. But uh, in terms of Ellie, uh, Marchi and I, we've been working on a paper on a cognitive enhanced engineered Ellie. In other words, an Ellie which would try and enhance co cognitive abilities instead of simply being a therapeutic device uh, going into the realm of enhancement. And uh, that will take something very, very different because first of all, we don't really know what intelligence is. We don't have an overall consensus of intelligence. Uh, secondly, we don't know the evolutionary antecedents which, which endowed humans with intelligence and all other organisms with different types of intelligences. We don't know, you know, we, 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 this is new ground for us. You know, so when people are saying, you know, they're going to create a pill or a kind of nano brain, uh, you, you, they, these people need to know the evolution of the brain, where it came from, how it evolved before you can try and create these products. And we know Jack at this time, any decent uh, neuroscientist will say, well, we don't know very much about the brain. Uh, I know Robert Sapolsky from Stanford University. He said, he, you know, he's a very, very fine thinker. And he just says, we just don't know very much about the brain. In our paper, Messing with the Mind, 
which uh, back in 2017, we wrote about this. We said, we've got to be careful because we don't know about the evolutionary antecedents, which has endowed us with this specific type of consciousness, with this specific kind of intelligence. So we have to be careful. If we start tampering with the brain, we could open up a veritable Pandora's box. Because as Marchi said before, we'd be tweaking with neurohormonal organization. Uh, so there could be consequences, which unforeseen consequences. Marchi? Well, thank you, Arthur. <clears throat> just an example. Uh, people who ingest drugs, take so-called drugs, can commit crimes. Very simply, because drugs change neurohormonal regulation of brain functions. The neurons in the brain of a person on cocaine are connected. The neurons are still connected in the same way. And yet the whole behavior can change. And that's, that's something we don't pay enough attention to. And Arthur was talking about the intelligences of, of other animals and so on. The neurohormonal regulation produces what we would call in electronics an analog system, whereas connections between neurons are a digital system. And uh, we humans rely for our cognition to a large extent on the, on the digital system, on, on this categorical decisions, black, white, and so on. Whereas animals, other animals, other mammals, for example, rely more on the neurohormonal regulation, so the analog approach. So they understand changes in the tone of voice which we usually ignore. Sometimes subconsciously, we still react to the change in the tone of voice, but we usually pay attention to what the person is saying. And what person is saying is categorical words, separate words, each word being a symbol. So yet again, approach to better mental processing of uh, reality can be based more on the analog approaches than on just the digital approach alone. So yet again, systemic understanding rather than the uh, simple one step at a time. Yeah, and that was something that, you know, in all the years I taught complex problem solving, you know, that's where I met Tim. Um, one of the things I became so aware of is the extent to which what we do consciously and deliberately comes from somewhere that is this amazing black box. And the more you do anything, the more the black box is doing the work for you. And you go, and how did I get to the point where I could do that? And how did I get to the point where I can trust that? So the analog and digital systems are working in conjunction, but without us being able to see into the box and know what's going on. So this seems to be an even another thing where, you know, Ellie could end up being massively important an early version of Ellie that literally just goes in and monitors to increase our understanding of the brain. Yeah. Yes. Ah, well, yes. Marchi, Marchi talked about the analog. Ellie's following an analog approach. Yes. And that Ellie could just sit there initially and build a network to monitor and transmit this is what's going on in this person's brain and give a deep insight because Ellie's all over the brain. Ellie can say, oh, there's activity here now. So suddenly scientists can see the image in real time because Ellie's beaming the image out to the world. And we have 
a proper overlay of the whole brain at once. What's going on with this person all day as they just live their life? Yeah. It's an attractive proposition, yes. <laughs> we, we could be able to see it. And, you know, again, having worked with the military so much, one of the big things that I'm always interested in is, you know, traumatic brain injury because no one wants to admit the real numbers of TBI from Afghanistan and Iraq. And yeah, yeah. again, we can't necessarily rely on people with TBI to tell us what's going on in their brain because their brain has been so altered. So something like Ellie to be able to build a network and go, this is what's happening in this person's brain after their TBI would potentially yes. be amazing. Well, Ellie would not so much build, but support yeah. networks. Yeah. Um, supporting, which is just as important. You know, yeah. you're supporting what's there. Yep. I mean, she's not, she's not a magician. She's not going to be creating anything. No. She's going to be supporting, but uh, uh, a cognitive enhanced Ellie, which is non-therapeutic, mm. uh, there are possibilities. We don't know. We'll see where our technology takes us in the next 20 or 30 years, notwithstanding that we don't blow ourselves up. Yeah, that, that's the whole other issue of that fact, that unfortunately our consciousness on top really doesn't know what our unconscious is doing. So if we don't know what we're doing, how can we know what Vladimir Putin's doing? But that gets us all off track. You know, speaking of Putin and, and hybrid warfare, I can't help but feel <laughs> I can't help but feel as if I, I know they're not digital, but you know, nanobots, I, I'm I'm not exactly sure how to describe them other than digital. Digital implants present a, a, a sort of challenge in that they can be interfered with. Humans are not hackable unless you believe in, you know, tarot um, <laughs> in the same way that something that's programmed is. Does, does Ellie present any danger of being, um, hacked, being hacked, misused? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, there would probably be, the there would be definite military applications of Ellie, uh, particularly an enhanced Ellie to make faster transmission faster action potentials in other mm. words it would theoretically make people think faster in a war theater which is precisely what you need you need to be able to react respond very very quickly in a war theater so uh yeah there's there's possibilities there um in our review process one of our reviewers stopped reviewing our paper on Ellie, which was published a couple of years ago in Frontiers of Neuroscience. Now, this particular reviewer said that they stopped being a reviewer because they thought that Ellie is dangerous. The applications yeah. of Ellie are, are probably dangerous. So they did not want to be any more in this process of review. Now, this is the first time uh, I've ever experienced anything yeah. like this. So, um, but you know, well, when, we, when we create an idea, we create an idea for the benefit of humanity. When Einstein created his breathtaking papers back in 1904 and years after, he didn't understand or he didn't know that his ideas of relativity and other ideas would somehow help in the creation of an atomic bomb a couple of decades later. I mean, you know, his initial attempt was to 
provide some idea for the benefit of humanity, but other people took it to different directions. That can happen with every anything, yeah. basically. So yes, there, there are possibilities, which Marchi and I and uh, Abdurrahman certainly don't want. We want to help people. We want to help people with neurodegenerative diseases, basically, you know. We, mm. So that's our main idea. But other people may want to use something like Ellie for their own particular purposes. That's outside of our control. I can't think or I can't force myself or impose my ideas on you, David, or any other human being, you no. know? And We're it's free also, actors. It's also the fact that, you know, let's take someone like Rutger Breckman and all his work on the vast majority of people would rather be nice to each other and would rather look after each other. And if we stop doing things that matter for the sake of what the crazy few will do, we lose too many opportunities to help and grow and to understand. So it's always worth the risk of something going wrong or being misused because of all the positives that can come out of breakthroughs. Going back to the idea of stone tools, stone tools helped us to become humans in the long run, mm. and yet they can be used to cut somebody's throat. Yeah. <laughs> so it's decision making rather than the tool. Yeah. Again, it's the old argument. Yeah, anytime you come up with something new, you'll think of a use for it that's good for 100 people. Someone else will think of a use for it that's good just for them. Yes. And, and that's the whole bit of having human nature in it being, you know, still being unique to individual people. Tim, you got any other questions? I have plenty, but none uh, that were for, the, for the episode. <laughs> okay. Gentlemen, just before we end, you know, the normal way we finish off is to ask our guests, is there a question you know you wish we had asked you? So I'll start with you, Marchi. Is there, is there anything about Ellie you know we should have asked and we haven't? No, no. I think I'm satisfied with our discussion completely. That's a good place to be, Arthur. Is there anything you wish we had asked? You actually asked why the uh, the scientific our scientific colleagues have not so far been so interested in Ellie and we sort of provided possible answers. You guys are younger than us. I'm just wondering how an idea of Ellie would be what younger people, what younger generations, what would they think of a neuroprosthetic device like Ellie? Because this this design, if it does get designed, this device will be in the future. Yeah. And it will be in the future. And if it does work, then it's going to affect those, those generations who are coming up now. The older people will be gone by then. Yeah. But uh, so I'm just wondering what younger people would make of an idea like this. You want to go first, Tim, seeing you're the youngest? Or do you want to ponder on it a bit and I'll have a go first? Sure. My my intuition is that there will continue to be that chasm between people who embrace new technology for the greater good and those who are concerned with the keeping things natural, let's say, and, and unaltered. Um, I think that that 
kind of moral <laughs> discrepancy still exists in my generation where people feel that we shouldn't be messing with things you know acting uh acting not that i'm saying that you guys are but the, the argument That's might go something like yeah. you know playing god yeah Whereas, so I, but i think on the whole the majority will be embracing uh, just anecdotally yeah yeah whereas again i'll take it from the perspective of now you know I study comms and I'm working for one marketing company and doing an internship with another one at the moment. So I look at it from the message has to be built in the right way. And the right way to build the message to me to get reception is to get it on those functional levels first of what we could do for spinal cord injury. What could we do for a condition like March is dealing with? What could we do to improve the functioning of a retina? What could we do to get more data about the brain? And only after we've achieved all those functional fundamental things, could we even think of going deeper into what Ellie can do, but understanding that it would always be from the perspective of Ellie supports and one day in the distant future enhances an integrated organic system where your consciousness is always in charge and your consciousness is simply assisted by Ellie. And I think if those messages are put together the right way, the capacity for this to grab the imagination of just about every sci-fi fan who sat through, you know, the last series of Star Trek Discovery, where they're using the idea of mycelium and fungus to explain how the universe works. There's already a ready storytelling in the world that gives people a way to get this if it's made a bit more fundamental and you know the story aligns with something that is already amazing and supportive of human flourishing. Well said, lovely, uh, lovely exegesis. That's why I'm yes. the comms guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you so very much for your time today and coming on and telling us about Ellie and standard invitation. Next time you have an astounding idea, which you guys have very frequently, please get in touch and come back and tell us about the next thing that will blow our listeners' minds. Well, you'd be interested. We've, um, we've got a paper which is under review, which uh, you and Tim would be interested in. It's the idea of how we've become domesticated over thousands of years. What we used to talk about in March's office. Yeah. Yes. And, and why there has been an increase in mental disorders. Because we're so domesticated, nothing works. Oh, yeah. yeah you, got, you guys have to come back for the why we are battery chickens episode. Yeah. Why, why there are mental illnesses, why the increase in mental disorders throughout the planet. And Marchi, Robert Bednarik, Bednarik, and myself, we just wrote a paper which is being under review at the present time under, with medical hypothesis. And I think this is a really good idea. Uh, Robert and Marchi have discussed this idea of auto-domestication, but now in the context of mental disorders, that our, the way we domesticated ourselves has led to this proliferation mm. of me mental disorders on a planetary scale. You know, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do about it? So uh, I think that we could talk about mental disorders in the human species in comparison to apes, which don't seem to have as many problems as we do, and uh, particularly in the context 
of modern people in the last couple of years. COVID has really yep. pushed you know, it all revealed, that step further. You know, you know, the problems we've got now with mental disorders, yep. particularly with younger people, you know, which has been expedited by COVID. So this 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 new idea, this hypothesis which, uh, we've come out with, uh, I reckon that deserves another chinwag. Okay, listeners, Marchie and Arthur will be back once their paper is published and out, out there in the public world. Well, well, once it's been approved, at whatever point they really want to come back and talk about it. But Marchie and Arthur will be back. And for now, you Thank can also, you. And for now, you can also find uh, any of the articles we've referenced here uh, in the episode description. Thank you very much, Marchie, for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Great. Arthur. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, David. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, listeners. And remember, listeners, be brave. All we can do is make the world a better place. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favorite episodes or leave a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights, or you can send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. And also, don't forget, we have merchandise. Thank you to the Oscast Network. Peace out.